calling all beans, y'all. Let's get it. Welcome back to Calling All Beings, baby. We're about to get a brother on here tonight who sounds smarter than all five of us put together. And you know what? He might have better hair. All apologies to Flair. Anyway, I'm your host, DJ. Uh, I want to say hello uh, to my co-host, uh, the man that we call Money. Money Nathan. <sighs> What's up, DJ? How are you, man? Good. How are you tonight, sir? Man, doing well. Can't wait to talk to Christopher Sharp. Totally. It was great speaking with you earlier. I got to talk to two cabbies, say maybe three. I mean, that's a record. Uh, also, we'd like to say hello to our our um, associate producer, a lady who has uh, put an enormous, enormous amount of work into promoing Paws. Yes, that's right. That's right. Thank you right there. And that is, of course, Akashi Chris Mel. I'm so glad to be here, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to this man, Mr. Sharp, Sharp Dress Man. He's mm -hmm. bringing it. We're ready. Happened. So, okay, we're back. Thank are you, you man. Frozen? Yeah, we were all we were all spinning wheels. Uh, also, let's introduce uh, the third uh, uh, cabbie who who came up. Uh oh, we might have some DJ technical issues. Oh, I thought he was doing that on purpose. I did too for a second there. <laughs> I, thought so. okay. I thought he was pulling I'll pick a up youth the baton there. here. I'll pick up the baton yes. real quickly while he's working on that. Okay, can you guys hear me? Oh, nope. there he's yeah. back. Yes. Welcome. Okay, yep. maybe I'll change. Uh, I might change internet. I'm on. Uh, I might go ahead and change internet if that continues to the other the other band. Anyway, uh, Flaris Kevin is our 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 uh, video another video genius that we have who who has a slightly different take from uh akashi chris so both are both uh hilariously funny hi kev how are you well there are my presses on here my presses <laughs> wow was i wasn't ready for that that was good <laughs> <Your> precious <laughs> i love it and you know if that wasn't it, it was great <laughs> And if that wasn't enough on this show, we also needed a researcher. And of course, that is at a study of UAPs. Her name is Deb, host of the uh, Deb's Data Dojo. Hello, everybody. Deb. <laughs> Marilyn, so can you give us a anywho? Hello. <laughs> Happy not right. the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Super Bowl's coming later, man. They haven't even That's kicked right. off It'll yet. It'll be we on for good. hours. But now we're going to welcome in our very special guest from the United <laughs> Kingdom and the Liberation Times. Party people, put your hands together for Christopher Sharp. Yes. Put those oh, hands I'm in, trying. Nathan, I'm where trying. you at? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome, sir. Christopher Sharp, baby. Come get some of that. Woo! Yes. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Christopher, your hair looks great, and uh, I want to let you know I am missing my Union Jack neck gaiter. However, thank God, my wife gave me my Valentine's gift today, and. Mm -hmm. 
Uh oh. Well, I think he's it's showing frozen. a Beatles shirt. I do, I do love. We're gonna have to do that reset, DJ. It looks so good that it's frozen there. It's exactly. That's a great shirt. It looks so good. Bro. Okay. It's a beautiful okay. Beatles shirt. And I think yeah. what he's trying to say is that we're very happy to have you with us, Christopher. And yeah. we're all big fans of your work. <laughs> and uh, and are really looking forward to chatting with you. We've got a lot of questions. I know everybody on this panel has a lot of questions. And I know we've got questions from the audience as well uh, that we will get to. I would like the first question to come from uh, from Deb at Study of UAPs. Deb is our researcher extraordinaire and also the host of Deb's Data Dojo, which is probably one of the hardest working shows in this uh, community. Deb is doing great work uh, with all things research and interviews. So, Deb, you want to you want to fire away at Christopher here? Oh, yeah. I would like to start with one of my favorite questions, which is what motivates you? What keeps you going? when you work on this subject? <laughs> um, just getting into the mainstream, actually. I mean, it's it's been difficult. Um, I gave up a career that paid a lot of money, let's say. Um, <laughs> and I started Liberation Times just as a way of passing time. It wasn't seen by me as anything serious at all. Um, but then it just kind of like really took off and I, I really wasn't expecting it. Um, and I, I guess what turned into something which was just something for fun um, and something I enjoyed doing is now turned into something that I'm hoping can be a useful tool, let's say, to um, kind of like unravel more, more mysteries surrounding the disclosure, well, the phenomenon, sorry, um, that can actually fuel disclosure. Um, so what I'm trying to do, I mean, so back in December, for instance, it was all about kind of um, advocating the political conversation, saying, uh, look, um, you know, the DOD um, is pulling the wall over the eyes of, uh, or they're trying to pull the wall over the eyes of Congress men um, and women, and um, it, it's not going to work. Here's why, laying out my arguments, basically. And that turned really, really popular. Chris Mellon, Lou Elizondo and others retweeted that. And um, I guess ever since then, I've been trying to use the platform that I have um, to really like be a voice of good, just like helping everyone, being positive, not trying to be partisan or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, if I can... If I can make that slight bit of difference, you know, um, uh, then that that's okay by me. You know, it's not about money. Um, I mean, it helps obviously. I'm doing a bit more freelance work now to support myself, but I mean, the main focus is really just about furthering the cause as much as I can, and providing value as well. I don't want to just like when I, when I write something, I don't want it just to be filler. I want people to come away learning something from my articles, whether it's about history, the phenomena. Um, philosophy, just, just anything really. I want people to really take something away from the pieces that I write, if that makes sense. <laughs> and they do. They definitely do, Chris. And you know, um, like for Nathan and I, I think it's an intense curiosity that drives us. Uh, among the other three of us, there have been varying levels of experience uh, with the phenomenon that I think drives them. 
And so I'm curious, though, just to follow up on Deb's question, is there something, was there a seminal moment or something that, that drives you, that makes you say, I want to know and I want the world to know, and it's because X happened that maybe I don't talk about regularly, but whatever that happened to have been, that seminal moment. Serendipity, really, that's a really good question. Uh, but yeah, I think in my case, it, it really is serendipity. I just feel that, you know, events combined to put me in this position. Um, I mean, I don't really have that third eye where I can see other things, but my mum does. Um, uh, my mum, so in the late 70s, she was walking her dog, Cass, an Afghan hound, <laughs> you can imagine. Big, Ooh, like, big dogs. Dog with long hair. <laughs> so she was walking that dog and um, she she spotted a triangle kind of like craft ahead. And she felt like it was chasing her. And she ran home. And I mean, she told me that it was in the news and that it had been spotted by Heathrow Airport. Um I need to really look into the case, actually. But ever since then, she's my mum has had these kind of like weird visions, weird dreams and stuff. And she says in every single one of these dreams, she always sees my dog, that Afghan hound that she was walking with at the time that she had her encounter. And it's only really recently dawned on her that she'd never had any of these experiences until she had that kind of um, sighting, well, encounter, let's say. Um, so I found that quite weird. And when I got into like the topic, I mean, last December, she had like a weird, like lucid dream where I was in it, standing next to all like my dead relatives. I know this is really intense here. And no, it got me really worried. <laughs> I was like, gosh, am I the next one? <laughs> I know, right? This is perfect. This is cool. Like, no, no, no. It was something else. I don't know the meaning of why you were there, but you were there. And yeah, I was really worried at the time. Um, but I, I, I feel that, yeah, but getting onto your question, I feel that these things, my mum's experiences, my brother has similar experiences as well. It really got me into the paranormal. And when I was younger, I used to bunk off school and watch UFO documentaries and things like that. And I was really into the topic. Um, and then I guess um, when I went for education, um, a series of events, like health events and stuff like that, um, like a diagnosis of primary reading epilepsy, which is one of the rarest ep- epilepsies uh, known to man. <laughs> kind of like really set me back, but it put me on this path where I was doing um, public affairs and public relations when I, when I eventually could get medication to actually um, read <laughs> and wow. talk and listen and any other linguistic activity. Because before the medication, I couldn't do any of that. You take me off the medication today, mm-hmm. um, I guarantee you in a week, I won't be able to read a sentence. So that's how crucial that was to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, that public affairs experience and stuff has really led me to where I am today in terms of writing, my writing ability, my ability to research, advocate a cause politically, um, and also build a website as well. And um, I've also got this artistic side to me. I, I really just like have a, I, I, don't, th- I don't do things logically. I do things very emotionally. So when I was writing uh, that article, for instance, where I was arguing, uh, you know, the one that Mellon and Louis de Zondo um, retweeted, um, 
that was coming from emotion. I mean, just what one night I had this feeling, you have to write, you have to write. So I put my son to bed and I just had this urge. It all just came out. And when I posted that article, I was like, oh gosh, I'm going to wake up tomorrow. Someone's going to see a typo and, <laughs> you know, the, the usual UFO Twitter stuff or someone's going to call BS. And it just got this amazing reaction, really. And um, ever since it's kind of like snowballed in a, in a really cool direction. I, well, I think I think I, the entire show is already in love with you just based on your answers to those first questions. We already love you, Christopher. Uh, and your experience, you know, growing up dealing with that illness kind of reminds me of a young man named Richard Starkey, who some people know as Ringo Starr, that had to uh, overcome some of that to become the Beatles drummer. Uh, let's pass it on to the next cabbie, lest I, I hog any of your time. <laughs> well, Chris, I, I wanted to jump in there. So, you, you know, I love what, I love that story that you shared with us. And what I wanted to ask you really ties well into that experience. So there's this, you know, very kind of left brain and right brain components to ufology. You know, there's like what we can study, what we can report on, what we can interview about, and then what we, and then what many people experience. And what we have found in, in talking with folks uh, is that a lot of people have experiences. They have stories or they know someone who has but very few of us have had that kind of uh, left brain analytical exposure to it. So what's your sort of take on, on at, you know, with your publication and writing uh, stories about this, you know, how do you find that balance between the things that you can get quotes on and facts from and, and the things that people want to share in their personal experience or history? Great question. It's very, very intuitive. So, um, you're kind of like feeling the article, you know, you're, you're um, so, I mean, it goes through a process. There's the idea. Um, sometimes you can even meditate and the idea will come to you wow. of what you should be writing about, which I found quite interesting. Um, so there's that aspect to it, getting the idea. Um, and then it's kind of, um, it's just writing then what's on your mind, writing what's on your mind and what argument or topic you want to put forth. Um, and then once you've done that, then you have to come up with the sandwich filler, <laughs> you know, reference things, ground things, um, add quotations, ask people who know more about the subject than me, because at the end of the day, there's so many people who know so much more than me. Um, so I, I, I rely on them. Um, so I've got my sources that can really, really help me. And sometimes I'll put a story by them and they'll come up with ideas of how I can improve it. Um, or they'll come up with a quotation that will take the story in another direction. Um, so I really rely on those people who, who know more than me. Um, and then what I do is like, once I've got all that together, I've kind of got my argument, I've got what I'm talking about, the, to the topics, I've got the quotations, support it. And then what I'm thinking is I'm thinking, okay, to, to, to a person that doesn't know anything about UFOs, like let's say if a senator was going to, going to read this piece, what are they going to think? So, so then I need to start grounding, grounding kind of like my, um, my topic. So for instance, when we did the Adrian Rice story, it was very, very important because, I mean, yes, seeing stuff in the sky, that's acknowledged now. That's a real thing, you know, UAPs, I mean, that's acknowledged by senators um, and even scientists getting on board that something's going on. But then when it comes to a shadow person, 
I mean, that might be a step too far. And, and you know, if you're someone from the DOD reading that, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How, how, <laughs> you, know, so <laughs> you need to ground that. You, you need to make, you need to kind of like um, make it appear as though it is actually something that is legitimately of concern. So you have to kind of like contextualize it saying, actually, there are, there are, there is technology and, and there is technology around that will obscure someone. It's like camouflage. Um, and make them perhaps look like a shadow. So, so there is that technology which may be around, and, that, and, and, I, and I managed to find a, a source for that. So that grounded it. So, and, and at the end of the day, like Adrian says, like if anyone if anyone you know enters into that, those premises, whether it's you know um, Bigfoot or you know um, a squirrel or, or anyone like that, you know it's bad <laughs> and these people take psychological evalu- evaluations as well you can't just you know have the role as a nuclear engineer that adrian did without having those evaluations so yeah it's you have to really ground those articles basically um yeah but, but there's that whole kind of like thing kind of like you have to kind of like read it from a third perspective and then obviously as well, you have to proofread it time and time again, read it out aloud to make sure that you've got no typos and stuff. And yeah, it, it's, a, it's, yeah, it really is a process and you've got to use both halves of the mind, really. It's, uh, it's difficult, really difficult. And a lot of other teams, a lot of other publications, you know, they've got big teams and editors. And for me, for the most part, I just rely on some friends and put the article out there and pray for the best. <laughs> Well, you're doing great so work. If, can, can I ask a follow-up just to that comment? Because you were talking about going through this process of evaluating those stories and then seeing, you know, if you put this in front of somebody, you know, how are they going to react to this? That kind of limit you in um, being able to cover, you know, more broad topics that, that might not be so welcome, like, you know, or so welcome to the mainstream, like the power, you know, consciousness, uh, remote viewing, any, you know, anything like that. Does that kind of limit, you know, where you can go and how do you, how do you deal with that? Cause that's, you know, yeah. that's part of it. So. Yeah, no, great question. Definitely. Um, I won't name anyone, but I have received tweets before saying, how can you report that story that's going too far and that's too woo and stuff like that. And I mean, I, I, I tread a really, really fine line mm-hmm. because obviously when you've got a publication, you've got, you know, people from all kinds of corners of UFO Twitter who are kind of like reading it. And obviously you've got outside people perhaps as well, like people, you know, in Washington and um, journalists as well looking to report on something. Um, so you've really, you've really got to, to balance that. Um, but as I see it, um, there's a time and place for everything. And I think eventually, you know, we'll get there where we can start talking about some of this stuff, like remote viewing and, you know, a story that I really want to feature, really, really want to feature, is um, the Peter Curry case. Um, not, no, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it was a big case in Australia whereby a, um, an Australian, Australian man, um, he, he basically woke up to this being on top of him. <laughs> oh my goodness. Just, yeah. Let's just say on top of him. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, um, okay. But, okay. <laughs> but basically she had, um, long blonde hair, like bright blonde hair, um, and but the face didn't look right, the, the proportions and stuff. 
very, very big eyes, very, very kind of like thin nose. Um, and yeah, she just didn't look right. Really big forehead. Um, and she didn't talk. And there was another woman in the room as well um, who had dark hair, who looked very, very Chinese. And by the way, the blonde haired girl, she kind of like looked oriental as well. Wow. But anyhow, um, he claims that they were um, communicating telepathically. Um, and he said he received lots of information as well, telepathically, what would happen in the future. And that information um, came to be true as well. So he said that, but also he had DNA samples as well back up his case. So um, let's just say that he managed to get hold of some blonde hairs, two blonde hairs from the being on top of him. Wow. And um, he got them studied in the lab. And um, it ended up that it was extremely, extremely, extremely rare DNA. Um, it was kind of, it was half from um, like an ancient Chinese Mongoloid tribe, which is very, very, like a really, really obscure tribe. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other part of the sequencing was of Celtic origin, a very, very rare Celtic origin from the United Kingdom. Wow. I, 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 they just, to this day, they can't make sense of it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Told you I was a hybrid. I told yeah. you guys. You yeah. didn't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get back to remote viewing in that case later, but not before we get to my man Flarius, Kevin. Oh, um, actually, I don't have anything on topic <laughs> right now. Um, oh, well, great. Uh, we can go. No, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we can go. I, I wanted to actually go back to um when you say you're writing stuff, you say it's kind of almost feels like it's it's you don't know where it's coming from. Did you, did you mention that? Could you maybe expand more on that? I thought that was really interesting because I experienced that too when I'm like making these videos. I don't know where it's coming from. It just comes out. Yeah, you know, you know definitely. And um, yeah, I think it was um, it was Tesla who was who, who claimed Nikolai Tesla who claimed that kind of like ideas and stuff just come from the universe and. He listens to like songwriters and stuff as well. Like Bob Dylan, I believe, has basically mm -hmm. said it's kind of like a stream, and he'll be fishing or something like that, and he'll just catch a song, you know, and yeah. just comes like that. Um, and then you look at Neil Young as well, um, and obviously he's had kind of epileptic experiences, um, and hallucinogenic experiences as well. And um, mm -hmm. I always find it funny that one of his songs was called "After the Gold Rush." Um, from the album, self-titled album. And that really resonates. I think Chris Bledsoe mentioned that the lady claimed that that song was of importance or something. But wow. he wrote that song for a movie, Neil Young did. Um, yeah. It never got released in the end, but it was about it was about um, an end of world event happening. Um, and like California or something being wiped off the map. Hence the name after the gold rush, because everyone came to California for the gold rush. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but never got released. Right. Um, but yeah, back onto that. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I think in terms of the linguistic process, it's very, very complex, which I've learned from like my condition. Um, you know, if I do get flare-ups, I have to put myself in a meditative state. I can't think because even when you think you're thinking in language and words mm -hmm. in your head and stuff. And, that really sets it up for me because the mind, my, my mind, my brain gets hyper excited 
you know, everything's firing in the wrong direction, which causes a seizure. So I have to kind of like really quiet my mind. Um, because obviously, like when you're taking language in, you're hearing it and it just feels instantaneously like every word you're kind of like processing the meaning, you know, like when you're listening to me talk right now, yeah. there's the sound coming out of my mouth, but also like subconsciously everything's like going through your brain to like make meaning of each word that I'm saying as well. And it just so happens when it happens to me, it's just, yeah, goes all over the place. Um, but when I came from a seizure once and I had paramedics uh, looking after me, um, I'd been reading Jane Eyre, the book Jane Eyre. And um, obviously that was written, I think it was in the 19th century. So um, when I woke up, I was speaking with a 19th century dialect <laughs> to the paramedics. Whoa, interesting. Christopher, is this a tool? Can you can you use this as a tool creatively? Um, being aware of it, I feel, yeah, I feel like you have an intuitive sense of language and meaning and yeah. <laughs> I've put it really. You know, uh, I brought this up because I've 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 heard people they say that their connection with the phenomenon may be just channeling these things, you know, art, stuff like that. So maybe that could be your connection, it could be your experience, you know. Yeah, like maybe. your mother has her own personal connection, your brother does. You know, this could be yours. I feel maybe sometimes this might be mine, all my weird art stuff. Yeah. Do you ever meditate and then like when you're meditating, I, kind of like get ideas and stuff come from it? Yes, absolutely. Like sometimes when I'm done meditating, I'll I'll be able to write a song. Just the music, it just comes to me. Yeah. Or poetry, stuff like that. Definitely. That's very powerful. That's very powerful. I think if you do listen to a lot of the singer-songwriters and stuff, I feel like a lot of the ideas come from like meditation or For just sure. kind of, um, let's say, coincidence slash serendipity. Like, um, you know, you listen to like Paul McCartney and, um, and John Lennon speaking interviews and stuff about how they wrote songs and they used to look through the local newspapers and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> wow. To, like, yeah, some sort of frequency. You can just tap into it. It's, it's weird. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think that's where serendipity plays in because if, you, if you're if you looking for something, the universe will provide you the answer. Hmm. Yeah, before we pass it to Deb, I, I just realized that I think Christopher knows more about my music than I know. Neil Young, <laughs> Bob Dylan, the Beatles. <laughs> so that's awesome, man. We're brothers now, Holmes. <laughs> so, all right, let me pass it to Deb. <laughs> Okay, so speaking of tapping into things, one of the focuses that we've seen in the liberation times has been on foreign affairs related to UAPs, um, including, you know, the um, San Marino um, work to get to the UN, um, some work on the Vatican and so on and so forth. So I just wanted to know, you know, what, where are things going with that at this time? Um, how are things going with the progress of reaching the UN and foreign affairs related to UAPs in general? Sure. Really good question. So I, I got into this um, via Akam um, on Twitter, who, I mean, he's not just someone who kind of, um, He's he, he's he's great at kind of like disputing the news and stuff. Uh, he's a fantastic aggregator, but I think a lot of people don't realise that he's got an immense amount of knowledge in terms of international kind of like UFO cases and what's going on politically and stuff in between all the different groups in Europe and stuff. So um, yes, um, I, I mean I covered this at first 
in terms of the, um, I think it was called the Five Continents events organized by China. Um, and China has, from my understanding, the largest UFO organization in the world. To be a part of the organization, you've got to have like a PhD or something incredible like that. Um, uh, you don't just get into one of those groups saying that I'm interested in UFOs. You've got to have like the actual degrees and stuff. And, and a lot of paranormal stuff is outlawed by China. So the fact that they even allow a UFO group to kind of like be, a, you know, be legal in that country um, is really, really quite astonishing. And then for that group to play a big role in organizing these big events um, the first one in one of the Chinese provinces and then the second one in Moscow. And you had, um, it, it was really weird. It, I mean, these are huge events and it was government funded as well. Government funded. Um, so the Chinese government, from my understanding, was actually kind of <laughs> helping organize these events. And it wasn't just no one. You had like, you know, former Russian astronauts and people like that attending. And they're the ones who kind of got the main players that ICE are on board, like Roberto Panotti and Gary Hesseltine, people like that. They were the ones who brought them on board. And from my understanding, it was heading to the UN. Um, and that was that was what they were trying to do. And from my understanding as well, I mean, Akan might have to correct me, but I think the plan was like the Chinese effort to take it to the UN via San Marino. Um, and then just everything went quiet. In 2018, everything went quiet. Um, people blamed the pandemic and stuff, but, it, you know, I mean, that was too premature for it to be due to the pandemic. So it all went quiet. And then all of a sudden, those people that China put together came together themselves, created ISA. Um, and now we have a situation today whereby Project Titan, which is um, a proposal to, or the plan, to take it to the UN is now with the um, heads of state of San Marino. Um, so a few weeks ago, they had a meeting with Roberto Pinotti and a former kind of like San Marino minister who was also on board with the effort. And um, they provided him, they provided the heads of state with a presentation. Um, I was told as well that the presentation included one of my articles, which was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, they provided that to the heads of state of San Marino. Um, the heads of state of San Marino now need to talk to kind of like their version of the cabinet where you've got all the, all the portfolio holders and stuff like that. And then what they'll have to do, they'll have to come to a joint decision whether or not to actually um, go ahead with this and propose it to the United Nations. But from my understanding, everything's very, very positive. It went down very, very well with the heads of state um, so I'm really, really hoping that we, we can get somewhere on this. And my, my hope is that I can help in some way, kind of like, firstly, help report this in a very, very credible way, and also kind of like help get that out to more mainstream media as well, and influence the way that they report it. So it's not just like, oh, San Marino, look what they've done. They've got this crazy UFO thing that they're putting forward to the UN. No, I want it reported properly. Um, so that, that's, yeah, <laughs> sorry, it's quite a winding road answer there, but that, that's what I'm getting at really. But I, the, long and, the long and winding road. <laughs> We're back to the Beatles. All right. Absolutely. money's, <laughs> money's I love that. Nice. And it actually comes into my next question. So there's an, it seems to be a tremendous appetite for this topic, right? I mean, we've heard from, 
Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal. We we know the New York Times piece that they did. And, and and the same thing with 60 Minutes. These pieces get a lot of attention. There's a lot of interest in the public on this topic. But at the same time, it feels like it gets throttled. Like it's it, it's it's strange to me. And I just wonder your take on this as a journalist. You know, you're we're, we, we are hungry for this information and what governments know. And I think most people seem to believe that the government knows something, that they have some knowledge that we don't have. Um, but it, but at the same time, the momentum feels like it's just really very controlled. Uh, do you have a sense that that is true? Why doesn't it get more traction in in mainstream circles? Very, very good question. So um, it's, it's a stigma. It's a stigma. It's also groupthink as well, because you have to think a lot of these editors and owners of publications you know, in America, a lot of them went to Ivy League schools. Um, they know a lot of the senators as well. So there's a lot of group thinking there. Um, and they just kind of like see UFO related stuff as a fringe topic. And they don't really want to be associated with that because then when, then when they go to their parties on Rhode Island or wherever they go in America, <laughs> you might be UFO guy. You know, and that, and that doesn't help. You know, a lot, a lot of these guys, they really care about their status. And I say that from someone who's worked with a lot of Oxbridge um, people in, you know, my career, there is a lot of groupthink and these people, they really want to kind of, um, you know, they see that their social circle is crucial to kind of like helping them progress in their careers. You know, so, you know, if you're like a, a politician in the UK, you could be a back backbencher, which means that you don't have a ministerial slash government position, um, you know, and you're, and you're desperate for that promotion. You know, you want to become a minister um, well, the prime minister one day, let's say, and, you know, if I take this issue to you as, you know, a politician, you're not going to, you're not going to take it forward because it could harm your career. Um, and this is like journalists as well. They don't want to be known as that. If you want to become like an editor of like a major like newspaper or something like that, you're thinking this might hurt my cause. Um, but it is changing. It is changing. I mean, I'm in touch with some journalists and, you know, they very much view this now as something that they need to get on board with and have conversations like myself um so that they can be on top of the story when the you know big news breaks because looking at the ndaa 2022 there are signs that something is going on beneath the circuit surface and when you're seeing the nuclear the nuclear re related stuff in the bill i mean that's not coincidental when you're seeing the physiological stuff in the bill that's not coincidental so you have to ask yourself as a serious journalist, where, where are serious sentences like Gillibrand and Rubio getting this from? Why they're, they're not just including nuclear materials and storage and physiological impacts just for nothing or on a whim. I mean, these are people that want to become presidents um, in the future. So I think journalists get that now. And, and my advice always to journalists is to ground it in that NDAA, because although it may seem quite tedious and boring and um, bureaucratic, you've got some astonishing stuff in there as well. I mean, that allows you as a journalist to kind of like speculate now on the physiological effects and, you know, the nuclear connection as well, which is what I did in, you know, one of my recent stories about um, about skin skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Um, I was able to kind of like report on the Nimitz case because it's been told to me that there were, I think it's called ontological effects from um, the phenomenon which calls 
psychological trauma um, to the people involved. Um, and that's seen as that, that's a defense consequence there because it could it could mean that you know these people who are, who, are, who are flying you know millions of dollars worth of fighter jets with live armaments you know above US soil. I mean, if they've got, you know, if they've got, you know, psychological trauma, that, that's a major deal. That, and that's why it's so important to get it out there and stop the stigma. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're getting somewhere now with the Navy, which is fantastic. People can talk freely about this now. But what about Air Force pilots? And Air Force pilots, these are the ones as well that can carry nuclear armaments. So why, why are we not having that conversation there? you know, and helping those pilots talk about their experiences because, I mean, if, you know, the speculation is that sightings are, are actually accelerating, you're getting more sightings now of UAPs now more than ever. I mean, this is something really, really important. If I'm a senator, I'm like, look, you've got to get on top of this because if pilots are frequently encountering this, it poses a, a huge, huge threat, not just to kind of like UAPs themselves, but the pilots and the impacts that they're suffering. So it's, it's hugely important. So just yeah. to, can I ask a quick follow-up on that? Yeah, sure, sure. Only because we were reading the article that you wrote about skinwalkers in the Pentagon. You actually drew several parallels to some of the things that you saw that were being implemented as part of the NDAA and the actions that were being taken. If you wanted to cover a couple of others of those, because you had you kind of outlined them all and it was really fascinating. Oh yes. Yeah. So um in the appendices. Um, you had, you had, I think it was like seven, several recommendations that they put forward. And I, I don't think the thing about that book is that people just immediately caught on to, oh gosh, here's Skinwalker, um, Skinwalker Ranch and, um, all these, you know, sightings of creatures and stuff like that. And, you know, it really got sensationalized and, you know, people lost the fact that these are serious people, serious scientists and, you know, they've actually kind of made some important recommendations in there as well about how we can move forward in terms of a UAP investigation. Um, so, yeah, they had several recommendations and I just thought they were really, really important. It's just kind of like how you would function as part of an investigation. So one of them, for example, would someone on your team would have to have knowledge on US black projects. One to rule you know, the technology out as being the culprit. The other is, let's say if it is Russian or Chinese, which I doubt it is, um, but either way it could become, you know, a defence, something of defence importance. You know, you've got to make sure that you have something in your inventory that can counter that as well. So there needs to be that connection. It's like, okay, so you've got this craft, which is got this capability. How do we defend ourselves? I mean, we don't, we don't know the intentions and, that's that's the thing and i know that everyone has different different kind of like thoughts and beliefs and stuff on what the intentions are but it could be more complex you know what if there are like several civilizations visiting this planet some are friendly some are not friendly it, the universe is so complex so i mean you've got to rule that kind of like stuff out um and it's kind of like having field teams as well um located in different parts of the country so they can actually um react quickly to any unfolding events and stuff so you might have one on the west coast another on the east coast maybe another um which is more inland that can react to 
um, cases where nuclear facilities are being tampered with and stuff. Um, so there's all sorts of things. And another, another one would be kind of like a, a, an apparatus that you'd have to kind of like filter all the data coming in to make sure that the most important data is going to the directors of that program so they have the most important, crucial information at their disposal. So if they need to escalate something, immediately they can. And when they're actually uh, briefing Congress, they can actually have the kind of like most important and reliable pieces of data to kind of like back them up and stuff. So that's really important. And sensors, Chris Mellon's mentioned this before, but sensors and having access to those sensors as well is really important. Um, and I, I think the satellite imagery that they have as well is, I think it's really, really advanced. I think a lot of these cases that you're seeing and stuff, yes, they're being spotted by the pilots. I think they've got sensors as well, perhaps picking up um, electromagnetism, radiation. So I think they're picking that kind of stuff up as well. But also I think that, you know, I, I think they've got satellites that kind of like view these events taking place as well mm -hmm. because... They're that good. I mean, you've heard the story about the Hubble telescope, haven't you? Um, mm -hmm. And um, National Reconnaissance Office. I mean, it was only a few years ago when National Reconnaissance Office basically went up to NASA and said, um, we've got two telescopes. We don't need them anymore. They're yours. You just have them for free. We, we don't need them. And these two telescopes were, both of them were better than the Hubble telescope. Wow. <laughs> It's kind of like, okay, if you don't need these telescopes, what else do you have that we don't know about? I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's some significant hardware out there. That's why I'm going to be really curious what the Galileo project is able to afford. I also very much agree with your hypothesis. I speculate also that there's several different maybe intelligences at play. Uh, we have no idea what their intentions are. That they're there makes them a potential threat, not a dynamic or existential threat, but definitely a, a potential threat because we can't seem to make them do anything, communicate with them, you know, and of course there's speculation on whether or not we're able to draw them into following or, or, or uh, performing some sort of an action that we want just to see if we can draw them in. That's speculation. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you though, back to, I know that, uh, you know, just reading your, your work, which is excellent and um, is very important in, in this space that you're there um, and that you're doing it at the level that you are, are, are doing it. I assume you, you have some really good sources. Do you have a sense of that the San Marinans, for example, or some of these other countries have a significant file that are, is yet to be disclosed? Have a have a significant kind of like file on, on UAPs, like cases and stuff. Sorry, my cat's attacking my light. Bella, <laughs> calm down, girlfriend. Okay, she acting up again. Um, anyway, yeah, like uh, basically what I'm saying, like through your sources, are you aware of other through your sources that other countries have a significant file, and it's it's yet to be disclosed or or yet to be revealed. <clears throat> that they have a significant file. We don't talk about it. We only talk about the United States, Australia, and the UK. And Absolutely. China. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> we know that um, China has its own task force now. Um, I suspect that's that's been something that's been happening for years because it's probably, you know, they've been a rising superpower that's had to start from the bottom 
and they've had to have some way to distinguish what's a black US project flying over its territory and what particularly might be something else. So, I mean, they've probably had that capability and investigation for some time now. Um, <clears throat> so, and then also, I mean, you look at you look at France as well. I mean, I did an article on France, and France, if you look at the territory of France, it's, I think it was something like, people, when, when you ask people what France's like longest land border is, they're like, oh, it's probably Germany or Belgium or something like that. It's not, it's something like Brazil, because <laughs> it's got French Guyana. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. But, wow. Yeah, and I mean, French overseas territory is very expansive and um, they've got lots of kind of ex- exclusive economic area as well, which kind of covers a large portion of the ocean. I mean, there's a map that you can look at online which shows you the, I think, the exclusive economic area of France. It's massive. If you include that, then France is like the second or third biggest country in the world. Um, but you have to imagine that they're monitoring those spaces all the time. Right. Um but I mean, from what my sources are telling me, yes, most definitely, most definitely, there are extensive, extensive files happening. Um, I, I think France's UFO organization, UFO investigation, from my understanding, is very, very extensive. Um, it may go beyond um, the the GIPAM, which is their kind of official kind of like UFO investigation. Um, but from what I'm hearing, that's pretty extensive. Um, my own country, I, I, I'm not really sure what the UK is doing still. I, I mean, have no idea. We, Nobody we, knows. We, we keep secrets. There's, there's a reason why this small country on the North Sea has been around for, you know, over a thousand years. You know, secrets are important to helping us kind of like survive. And I think that culture kind of like extends on to the UFO phenomenon. But I think... I think there is a capability that exists still, but also I think that we're intrinsically linked to the Americans as well. I mean, I'm originally from a place called Reading in Royal Berkshire, um, and we store our nuclear weapons near where I used to live, and there's lots of UFO encounters. There's lots of UFO kind of encounters there as well. My brother always sees um, UFOs. (laughs) right outside the nuclear facility but no one else seems to care <laughs> these things are in the sky um but i mean yeah i mean so um yeah i mean i, th- I think yeah so so that nuclear facility sorry i lost my train of thought there that nuclear facility where we kept our nuclear weapons up until like last year i think that was run by lockheed martin an american contractor so quite literally our nuclear deterrent is linked to the United States military and its contractors. That's how close we are joined joined together. Um, The research, Timothy Good even speculated at one time that, um, you know, the MOD is the extension of the DOD. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But obviously that's speculation, but I mean, just reiterate how close we are as allies. Um, so I think, yeah, but yes, go back to your question. Yes, there is. (laughs) Lockheed has a facility in Cambridge too. They get around, man. Uh, (laughs) but anyway, let me pass it over to Debs because we're going to take this long and winding road. We're going to take another sharp curve. Debs, what you got for Christopher? I don't know if it's all that long and winding. We were just talking about Lockheed Martin. So (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was going to ask you, you were interested in 
uh, crash retrievals. Yes, there's the segue from Lockheed, dude. Uh, <laughs> yes, um, yeah, nod to Lockheed. Um, I just wanted to know how you were doing with um, your investigation on that. I know that's a subject of interest for you. It is, yes. Um, very, very important topic. Um, and something will be coming out quite soon. Um, what it is, I can't say. Uh, but, I mean, there's a very, very different component to crash retrievals, um, which has kind of been hinted at, but it's not really caught on yet. But there's a hidden, hidden component to it. But, I mean, if you think about it like this, I mean, if crash retrievals are a real thing, which I think the evidence is pointing towards oh, <laughs> um, yeah. from anecdotal accounts and the pedigree of people talking about them, um, then that's a huge, huge deal. If it's something of extraterrestrial technology, now that's got the biggest kind of like significance of anything in the world. Everything else pales in comparison because if you master that technology, whether you're China or America, the world is yours. That simple. If it is that technology that we think it is, that is possessed by UAP, you control that, and that's it. And if you feel, if you think about that in a real world scenario, get beyond the Ukraine crisis, which is obviously very, very serious, and you know all these other kind of like, um, hot spots in the world and stuff like that. This kind of everything piles in comparison because you've got this technology all of a sudden that can, yeah, it's. That's the, it's still kind of like the mind boggles, you know, because the evidence is pointing in that direction. But you have crash retrieval programs, and if it is true, then that means there is a competition happening, perhaps between different nations, and the stakes couldn't be higher. <laughs> we'll send you uh, Debs and I. Debs sent us a Richard Doty interview that was very, very extensive, uh, much more in depth about very specifics about the crash the craft, the beings, how the craft operated, all kinds of different things, uh, biological nature of, of autopsied beings. And um, it, it's, uh, it was very thought-provoking. So we'll, we'll send that to you because it, it, you. that's all I can say. It was, it was pretty mind-blowing. Absolutely. I, and I reported as well on the um, 1933 reported Italian crash as well outside Milan. I mean, that's... That's pretty astonishing to think about as well. And had, you know, some really, really good Italian sources speak to me about that and, you know, how America, like, apparently um, they got intel from the Pope, the Vatican, let's say, um, that there was this craft that they had captured, the Italians, um, and that it was stored, and, they, and the Americans knew kind of the facility that it was stored within and apparently everything else got bombed during the war apart from that facility in that region where the, and then after the war I have a good knowledge as well that I was taken to Wright Patterson Air Force Base mm -hmm. um, and then someone else like a defense contractor source speculated that the technology from that crash had something to do with like rocket technology um, and jet propulsion technology not anti-gravity and I thought that was interesting as well because there's always like this theory that it's a control system in terms of the phenomenon kind of like helping us with technology and get to that next advancement. So it makes sense just kind of like helping us with that evolution go from 
jet and rocket technology. And then now, obviously, you might have anti-gravity components to it as well. So I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, it just gave me food for thought, really. That's <laughs> the, the, the creatures that they, they found there were Nordics, apparently. Wow. Really? Oh, yeah. So, so when, from my understanding, obviously, this is conjecture mm-hmm. um, and speculation, but from my understanding, when it crashed, there were two tall, blonde Nordics and Mussolini um, thought that they, it was German technology. They thought it was Germans because the German, they knew that Germany had quite a sophisticated kind of program. Um, so they just assumed it was German, but I think sooner or later they realized it wasn't. Um, and then there was a book, I can't remember where it was from again. It was from it was Leonard, Sting, Leonard Stringfield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the top UFO researchers did a book on it. And he apparently spoke to a French kind of like doctor who carried out an autopsy at Wright-Patterson in the 50s. And it found something really, really interesting that, that there, it was something, uh, I, need to, I need to look at the article again, sorry, and my source, but it was something about their immune system. It was like the immune system was like so dominant or something like that, that it protected them from getting any diseases or infections. Um, and that's really, really important in space because if you're, you know, a space-faring civilization, there are tons and tons of viruses and stuff out there, you know, in the universe. And that would become essential. You, you would have to have this kind of like immune system component, which was dominant in your body, that could kind of like fight anything off straight away. And apparently that's what um, one of the French biologists um, kind of like found there. But yeah, I'd need to find what the semantics and medical terms were again to kind of provide you more information on that. But I thought that was really interesting. That, that is, fa- I've never heard that case. That's fascinating. But I do want to let you know that Nathan's beard is able to achieve the same goal. Um, he's immune from viruses and illnesses. And I don't know if it's because he's from the lineage of Dr. Hynek or if that has anything to do with it, but it, it has proven to be the case. I never knew it. I, I never knew it. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Talking about kind of um, no. coincidences and. <laughs> We're messing with you, Christopher. This is just show. This is this is typical cab show they, craziness. There's yeah. no way to know for sure. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> do the pipe again. I want to make sure. Yeah. yeah. Do the, the pipe. pipe on, Nathan. There we go. There we go. Get it. Yeah. They're sharp. The, the doctor is in the house. <laughs> the Nathan Oh my goodness! I think the we're doctor. gonna turn you over to the capable hands of Flarius Kevin. <laughs> okay, so we're on. We're talking about crash retrievals. So you know, I notice the government they're they're more concerned with what what happens afterwards. So so I I'm developing a program to for prevention. I want to prevent these crashes. So you know, it's it's not done yet. I'm still working on it, but I, I have a video if you would be interested in seeing it and maybe giving me some feedback. You know, um, Nathan, do you have it in the queue? Yeah, I do. Thank you, sir. All right, so this is called it's Project okay, Hades. Chris. Okay. It's humans against drunken extraterrestrial spacecraft. All right. So now I noticed at the end of Prohibition, you know, you've got a number of crashes that they have increased dramatically since the end of Prohibition. I mean, a lot. So 
the mission of my program is to hold extraterrestrials accountable for their own wreckage. All right. So I came up with the five observables of intoxicated UAP piloting. All right. So the first one is you got to watch out for sluggishness and loss of altitude. So if you see those ships on the street, that. Number two, you don't want them interacting with humans. That guy's clearly drunk. All right. This guy. Uh oh, what happened? We have a technical difficulty technical here. There, hold on. Man, Nathan's holding it together, man. <laughs> I'm trying, man. This is so good. Christopher, what did you sign up for, man? There are actually a few people on Twitter who like retweet that and think, "What well, does anyone know about this speculation, or is it true? Is that a true video of it?" People would no, like, my friend. This that's is how news is spread. This is your right, on cab. That's all we're, this is. We're gonna try to launch it again here, Kevin. Hang in there. Okay. Yeah, because I'm right, disturbed cool. by that guy staring at me. I won't lie. Yeah. Oh, that guy. Oh, he has something to say too. That was fantastic. All right, he hold got on. Some. We, we've got to watch this. Oh, yeah. If only Paul. If only Paul and Ringo could come on and take part in this, man. Oh. Marvelous. There we go. Yeah. Okay, here we go. They're driving on the street. Wait, is Bad. he in the HOV lane? Wait a minute. Uh, yeah, he shouldn't be there. And he's scaring people, clearly, clearly intoxicated. Don't get out of your ship. Right? Oh, this guy, he just doesn't want to It's just wanna talk. It's freezing up on me it's, right there. Uh, yeah. It's forward, forward through the teeth. <laughs> well, yeah. anyway, this is the, the main gist of it. You know, I'm coming up with a program to hold them accountable instead of our government. I think, you know, they need to stop the drinking and the party. That's what it is. Do you think that's fair, Christopher? I mean, they're landing, they're abducting our people, they're taking their alcohol, and they're crashing. That's that's just not okay. You know, we, that okay? We've got to do something about this. Because um, Timothy Good claimed that, obviously there's these claims that they're walking among us and stuff like that. And, um, they are. Timothy and Good. drinking among us. <laughs> Timothy, I think Timothy Good claimed that actually. Timothy Good claimed that human-looking ones, or I think that he suggested that some of them may be indigenous to this earth, that they liked to like smoke tobacco and drink and stuff. So you may have a good oh, point. Yeah. <laughs> we need yeah. to make some sort of DMV for them. Mm-hmm. You know that way we can tax them. We can make money, tax them on their ships, make them get licenses, insurance. You know, I'll head the department. Insurance. You guys are watching in the government. I, you know, hey, yeah. come to me. Energy yeah, tax. Come on, man. They're renewing their registration every year. I mean, <laughs> come on. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yes. They should be licensed to fly here. You know, they Absolutely. should go through the FAA pilots. Emissions oh, testing. Out, man. Let's go. Emissions, exactly. Radiation emissions and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. MOT, yeah. MOT, like in the UK. Mm-hmm. If they're over the UK, oh, got to get the MOT, baby. They're out of control, yeah. these, these extraterrestrials. Yeah, out of man. control. Oh. It's I, quite I, funny looking at it from a bureaucratic perspective. <laughs> I'll tell you what, bringing American vehicles to the UK as I did, having to get my headlights were pointed the wrong way because we drive on the right side of the road. So they had to repoint my headlights, affix some, some side lights on there, uh, have the rear fog light, right, Christopher? Uh, and then even my motorcycle needed to get uh, MOT over there and get, get a little uh, UK iced. So it was all good, though. So I love yeah, UK. Anyway, yeah. my dresses. my God. He's doing Gollum for you. 
Oh, well, <laughs> we're ready to hear you, Christopher. Go ahead. Uh, I can't. We'll get your beer. <laughs> yeah, just, throat. just chug. Wait, you guys there are interrupting him. No, it is. Go ahead. Stupid fat hobbits. Something like that. I'm not as good as you. I do fat hobbits. You want to do it. You want to give him something a little bit out there, you know, because you're going to deflect his attention and make him laugh at the same time. So doing a Gollum impersonation is quite good for a baby to stop right. crying. Love oh, it, yeah, man. absolutely. All right, Akashi, do you have anything, or are we going to go with uh, listener? Do, does anybody, any of the cabbies, got, have more than want to speak about, or we want to bring on listener questions? Oh, I did. No, I just had one thing. Yes, I. Yeah. I just. I feel like um, I've. I've talked to the lovely Mr. Sharp uh, before about how sometimes he doesn't get to talk about his view of things, and I would like him to just have some space to express what he thinks is going on a little bit. <laughs> no, no, and, and you know it's been wonderful talking to you, and you know you provide some fantastic perspectives, and we have a great conversation. So thank you for your support as well, um, and everything you've kind of done in helping me and stuff. Um, it's been difficult putting articles out there. <laughs> you get people that love you and people that hate you. Um, you know, and people such as just yourself. You know, support that you provide really, really help me get through the day sometimes. So thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, on I mean, my, my, my theory is that obviously speaking for myself, I always go back to Tom DeLonge. I always go back to Tom DeLonge um, and some of like the older literature and stuff. And I like to put two and two together. Um, so, I mean, you, you go back to some of the interviews that he can't talk about anymore. And he obviously talks about kind of a, um, a collaborative effort, international effort going on um and that something is referred to as the big game to make it seem like you know we're building up armaments and stuff like that against each other whether it's america versus russia or so forth but really it's to kind of like counter something else which is deemed a threat by both russia and america um so i think there's that perspective and i feel that some events may be manipulated. There was the claim that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, obviously it was Starfish Prime, which was the big nuclear weapons test that took place in space. And Tom DeLonge claims that, well, he suggested or speculated, let's say, that there were, there were Soviets, let's say, and Americans in a, the same room as each other witnessing that as it took place um so i thought that was interesting um and obviously I, I i go back to secret machines as well go back to that i think that's really interesting um yeah and i go back to the ancient greeks i go back to those and i mean when you look back at greek mythology it's really interesting because obviously the Greeks were kind of a Mediterranean people, you know, um, dark hair, kind of olive skin, um, but their gods they always imagined were blonde, blonde hair, blue eyes, pale skin. Wow. Uh, that was interesting. And the Greeks, like, I mean, I always imagine that religion was just created by people just kind of like to help their fear of death. But no, when you look at the Greeks, the Greeks feared their gods. They, they didn't want, they didn't want their gods' attention because 
the gods were always playing with them and they were moody and they would play games and stuff. And um, and, and one of the interesting things is if you look at the, the Greek kind of like story about how you know, Earth came to be and how humans came to be, humans were not significant. We're not a significant part of the story. <laughs> you know, if you look at the Greek kind of mythology of how the Earth came to be in the universe and kind of like if you look at any other kind of like religious texts and stuff like that, humans were always at the centre existence and creation stuff like that but in greek mythology we're not um <laughs> and that's quite interesting, especially if we're not top of the food chain let's say which is being suggested by lou elizondo um so we we'll go back to that and then the last lastly we go back to lockheed martin as well and the defense contractors um and the u.s air force because if you believe if you believe tom delonge this all happened because of lockheed martin and the U.S. Air Force, um, you know, he claimed that he attended a barbecue event with Lockheed, managed to talk to um, one of the top guns, guns there, I think it was Weiss or something like that, um, who was like head of Lockheed at the time, um, or the Skunk Works at least, and kind of like that's how it all started, that's where Tom made his pitch to Lockheed, and then Lockheed introduced him to people from the U.S. Air Force, like the Castlings and stuff, and now the Air Force doesn't want anything to do with it, apparently. Um, and we don't hear anything from, you know, contractors or anything like that. And kind of like they're the missing part of the chessboard. But if you believe Tom DeLonge, those were the vital parts of the <laughs> chessboard that got this all started. So, I mean, that always, that, that's always something that I look at and I take on board, let's say. <laughs> um, can I... Go ahead. First of all, I do want to say something because for me and Flair, we're like obsessed with ancients and with what was here before. So we're probably going to be pinging you to bring you back just for like deep dive on that. So just a warning. Yeah. So a second, can we take a, a quick audience question? Because we got one. Please. Is that okay? Yep. Let's do that. So from Baby Goat. Hi, Baby Goat. And everybody on the chat has been Hi. great. Uh, was the bell connected to any particular faction of beings, government re-engineering, project, or just conjecture? <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, again, you just got pieces of the puzzle. I mean, if you speak to my former UAP Media UK colleague, um, the lovely Graham Rendell, I love so much, such a talented guy, um, he'll basically say that the bell is wasn't based in reality or anything like that. Um, and it, he'll kind of like, he'll air more to the side of dismissing it. Um, but I mean, if you look at kind of like Nick Cook, um, who used to write for Dane Exchange Defense and he had a book called Searching for Zero Point. I mean, there are strange things that happened, let's say. I mean, you had Hans Kamler, um, I think he was an SS officer who Apparently controlled, according to accounts, the Bell Project, and obviously you've got this structure as well in Poland, um, which is kind of like a henge circle, which was claimed that this is where the the, the Bell kind of was tested. Um, where they got that technology from, I'm not sure. Obviously, you had this kind of obsession with the Aryan race, blue eyes, blonde hair. And you had certain groups, let's say, 
um, like mystic groups that claimed that they were in touch with aliens. And I know that the Nazis were obsessed with the occult. You look at Heinrich Himmler and people like that. You know, they launched expeditions to Tibet and stuff like that for ancient knowledge. Anything that can kind of like help them kind of get ahead. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, you've got pieces missing really. Um, I don't believe that they were responsible for the UFO sightings slash food fighter sightings in um, World War II. I believe that they had mastered technology, which oh, they yeah. claimed that they had. It would have been game over in terms of World War II. There is the potential. I mean, if you read Secret Machines, it claims that the bell was kind of like removed and potentially taken to South America in the war, um, after the war. <clears throat> and there are really, really strange things that went on in South America after the war. I mean, you had, there's like a whole channel, like, um, which has videos dedicated to this of submarines that would, you know, Nazi submarines that would just come up on beaches and stuff like that. And they found that they'd been at sea for months, but no one knew what they were doing. And there was an empty cargo that they think they went somewhere else before. And obviously you had, um, you know, Nazi scientists as well, like building uh, military technology for um, kind of like some of the dictatorships in Argentina and stuff. Um, yeah. And I mean, there are whispers that something was going on in South America after the war. And if you listen to Tom DeLonge's interview with um, Joe Rogan, um, he claims that what crashed at Roswell was German. Um, he believes that. I mean, these are just claims. Obviously, these are just things that you just have to take into account. You can't put any conclusions there. But I'm not going to dismiss anything. If I did, if I dismiss something, I'm straight away just kind of like restricting myself. So I like just to keep these things in the air <laughs> and just like come back to them time again, wherever I see a corollarity um, occur. Um, yeah, but I mean, strange stuff happened in Argentina. You go to Argentina today, there are still like whole villages and towns, people speaking German, German. long hair, blue eyes to this yeah. day. Yeah, structures. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I've, I've seen some of that. Tim Kennedy... Uh former uh, Green Beret and former UFC fighter went down there and did a whole series on uh, hunting Nazis uh, in uh, in Argentina, uh, in South America uh, in general. Um, yeah, I, I want to say I also think Tom DeLong has some amazing sources, and you're right, we can't discount. He, he's connect, he, you know, got himself connected to some of the most powerful people in government and also in the defense industry and has more knowledge than any any of us have um uh and also to tom DeLong, shout out to you uh tom uh this gentleman right here christopher sharp would like to interview you and i don't think you could pick a better person to interview you so uh nathan will will be able to cut this up and we'll be able to make a promo but tom DeLong, get a hold of the real uh, is it real uh rc sharp yeah, he retweeted one of my articles back in December. Yeah. Um, one on what we can expect from 2022. And yeah, I thought he'd follow up with a message just saying hello. I was a big Blink-182 fan when I was younger. Uh, we'll, we'll do our best to make that happen uh, with our, our promo skills here to try to get Thank you me. connected with him. So so that's all yeah. I have on that. Do you have another question, Akashi? I have one if you're while you're hunting. No, I uh, don't have anything except we'll totally work on a promo for you. 
Yeah. So as uh, someone with a background in public affairs, what advice would you give to the others themselves on, on their public affair uh, work that they are or are not doing? I just find it interesting that so much of the conversation around UFOs, it's as if they're not in the room, you know, like whatever we're going to do, whatever another country is going to do, whatever, you know, waiting on the next disclosure tidbit or whatever, as if they're not a, an active party to this entire endeavor. So what, <laughs> you know, what, what is up with that? Right. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Are they waiting on, is, is it just uh, do you think that we actually have a good sense of what's happening here uh, and that we are carefully kind of rolling this out so that the public at large is ready to digest this? Uh, or do you think we really don't know what it is? And that's the reason why we haven't disclosed because th the things we may know are so strange and so weird that it's, it's really hard to tell this story or give it justice. Yeah. Very good question. I mean, um, I, I think there are different levels of understanding. I think that, I think knowledge has been possessed previously, but that might be compartmentalized. Don't think Lou Elizondo necessarily knows all the answers. <clears throat> he may himself be searching for some of the answers that may be compartmentalized in different sections um, within the defense and intelligence and even the Department of Energy, um, other agencies. Um, so I, I, I think that there is a process going on and the tip of that process is not the public, it's politicians who are being briefed in those committees like the armed, the armed services committees and um, the intelligence committees in Congress. Um, I, I think that's happening. And obviously they know a lot more than us. They've probably been privy to videos and stuff. Um, I think they're at least aware that there's a nuclear connection, perhaps, perhaps that we're baiting them using nuclear technology as well. Uh, I, I, th I think that that's happening. Um, so we're aware of that, but you know, if we are in touch with, let's say, different civilizations and stuff like that, I don't necessarily think they're privy to that. Perhaps it's just kind of like, I mean, it's kind of like boiling a frog, if you think about it. You know, you can't have the water too, you can't have the water to being too hot at first, otherwise they're going to jump out. You know, I think in this case, it's fear of ridicule that will jump out, or it's just they just can't process it. Um, because it just goes against everything ingrained in their kind of like culture and mind. I mean, I mean, we talk about our culture for one, but you look at other cultures across the world, you know, like um, we had a recent article about India um, and literally, um, you know, some Indian and Pakistani troops, they see these things in the sky, may see them as de demons, lit quite literally. Um, so, yeah. It's difficult. It's so complex. It really, really is complex. Just how you get this information out. I mean, it's one thing getting out to U.S. senators, actually, kind of like rolling it out to different kind of regions and different cultures, religions, and stuff. I mean, it's a complex, complex <laughs> process. But I think I think we're ready for the mission. I think <laughs> you know, like people like myself and you know others on you know, Facebook, we're, we're on we're ready. To help, you know. Definitely. <laughs> and Debs has got one more for you. Um, and I think that'll be the final one. 
Yes, this is a big one. Are you ready? Sure. What comes next? What to what? You know, I love your work. Obviously, you are very thorough. You give us citation. You give us videos, which is really cool. And I just can't wait to find out what comes next. Okay. So, um, in terms of Liberation Times, um, we're working on three stories. One, which is um, internationally based about a South American com- country named Brazil. Um, so we've got an article being written by a guest um, contributor on that who knows his stuff. Um, and then one other story or two other stories that I can't really talk about. Um, firstly, because the first one is still an ongoing pr- process of what information I can actually get from it and how big the story is going to get based on the information that I get. Um, let's just compare it to like putting a tooth out basically it's very very difficult um, and then another story um, which is from another guest contributor which is quite sensitive um, so um, but I, I mean I need to see the article for myself first but it could be quite explosive um, let's say um, so we've got those articles coming out um, and then in terms of what happens next in terms of UAP and stuff. Um, it's going to be third gear, like Lou Elizondo said, it's going international. If you look at the NDAA, you've got a section there saying that there will be coordination between the US, its allies and partners across the world. So I believe we're just at the start of a process that's going to kind of see what's happened in America repeated in other countries. But I think also this process is going to be expedited as well because you've got the UN component there as well. So, you know, countries need to get on board the train and kind of like have their own processes because um, when the UN stuff gets here and potential new revelations coming from the US as well, new videos and stuff, um, you don't want to be backed in the corner as a government. You want to, you don't want to be on the back foot <laughs> when it comes to that kind of like stuff. So I think, yeah, I, I think we're heading in a really good direction and um, science is going to get more involved as well. We've got the Galileo project, we've got Eric Weinstein, um, people like that, you know, some heavyweights and stuff getting involved now. And I, I think I think we're, we're, we're going to a good place. And like I said before, you, for the US government to have the Galileo project kind of like come out with an announcement saying we spotted, you know, tic-tac objects outside one of our nuclear facilities or something like that, or hovering around the sky, um, it's got huge capabilities which should be beyond anything that we're capable of. If that was to come out through the Galileo project, that they have spotted and disclosed this information first, before, you know, the US Air Force and DOD as a whole even acknowledge that, that's, that's a huge embarrassment. It's a huge embarrassment. Either you've got to admit that you've been hiding the truth and not being truthful to the American people, or that it's a huge kind of like, incompetence problem <laughs> that they can't even spot these things in their own sky it's taken a you know private group to actually discover it i mean they are backed into a corner <laughs> yeah i think they're more attracted to the naval assets because of the nuclear power component of them uh yeah. not to say that they're and you know we'll actually you know we'll talk about it backstage a little bit but the mission of the air force and the mission of the navy are two completely divergent missions and so one lends itself to more obfuscation than the other because of where they're occurring. 
um, meaning over the skies of the United States, but we can get into that yeah. backstage. Before, yes, sir. Before we go, um, there was a um, video, I'll put it up on my Twitter, um, and it was actually like relating to what you talked to, like baiting, basically. Um, and it was like a, it was a, a short film, short Russian film that was released, I think it was like two years ago. And it was based on a UFO event, which is fictional, but it's based on a drone. And the drone has got, let's say, nuclear material on. And the drone operator is operating this drone to bait the UAP. Um, wow. And the UAP suddenly go, comes and the drone has like an EMP kind of um, capability. And she gets the drone operator gets ordered to kind of like fire, you know, fire the EMP up to bring the UAP down. Ooh. And it just struck me actually that that's really quite clever. <laughs> and maybe as well as naval craft, kind of like baiting UAPs that you could pro probably have drones and stuff like that, kind of like baiting them as well. And you know, getting UAP, um, you know, um, electromagnetic pulses um, out there to bring them down, especially in Russia, which doesn't really have a lot of um you know sea sea area especially for most of the year where most of it's frozen um so yeah thought it was interesting <laughs> more more conversation for backstage uh but uh <laughs> um my my final question to you is uh is there a specific aspect of the phenomenon if we were going to talk about uh remote viewing or if we're going to talk about consciousness or um, interdimensional or extraterrestrial or crashes? Is there one sort of sliver tangent of the phenomenon that really fascinates you the most that makes you, that makes you Christopher Sharp go, wow. Yeah. Yeah, they no, definitely, I think it's, um, I think it's the whole consciousness aspect. Um, I, I think that really interests me because I was into biocentrism. What really is reality do we know what reality is? Um, is it in the eye of the beholder? Um, when you get to the quantum world, things get really, really strange. Um, so yeah, I think that whole aspect. So I'd recommend people like read Robert Lanza when it comes to that stuff. He's really, really interesting when it comes to the biocentric world um, because reality could just be something projected by your own senses. And like Louis Elizondo said before that we don't really see much reality. Um, we don't see 5G and or any of the other signals going past every single day. So wow. there's a lot that is based on our perceptions. Maybe reality is perception, which is also explaining why some people see UAPs, so others don't, and weird stuff like that. So, yeah, and and if they master tech, quantum technology as well, they can project things to us, which Curry Noden said. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Nathan could do 45 minutes with you just on that topic right there. He <laughs> loves some reality. Yeah, all right. That's the one. All right. Go ahead. Nate, uh, final comments by the cabbies. Yeah. Uh, well, Chris, you're incredibly articulate and the work that you're putting out is so just top notch. And uh, we are lucky to have you and your voice in this uh, endeavor um, we're lucky to have you tonight uh, to, to share in your experience and, and the work that you're doing. So we're here to encourage you to keep on with what you're doing. And uh, we'll always be here. If you want to come back and chat, we've yes, got a million yes. more questions and, and we look so forward much. to doing that. So, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Kashi. Oh, my gosh. This has been such a pleasure. 
Chris Sharp. I'm just, you know, it's it. This is so much more than I even. I loved it coming in, but I even love it more coming out because it's just, it's there's so much. And by the way, there's been so much chat action here in the last ten minutes that I'm just gonna go ahead and ask. It's like maybe we can have you back sometime soon. <laughs> you kind of rock. So, Absolutely. and we have a lot to talk to you about. So. I'm associate producer, so I got to work the deals while they're happening. So uh, anyway, thank you so much for spending um, all this time with us. And it's just been a pleasure. And everybody agrees. So we're all cool. So I'm going to pass it on to Flarious Kevin. Do you, do you mind quickly, if I just get my son, I can hear him cry. Please. Oh, yeah, we heard him. Go get him. Yes. Cool. The Tom well, Jones uh, of this show, Flarious Kevin. Thanks for coming on. To be <laughs> loved by anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't expect, wow. Nathan didn't expect me to sing Tom Jones, I don't think. I'm always ready for Tom Jones. Bring it. <laughs> yeah. I love Tom Jones. He's doing the voice. Like, right. UK oh, voice. That's awesome. I've that been awesome. seeing that. I love that. I'm like, oh my God, that's Delilah, Tom Jones. Man. It was awesome. So, look at yep. the cool clock. Let's go ahead and look at the stuff. Um, yeah, let's be uh, nosy. Here. Look out. Let's do a room it's right microwave. here. We don't have Kathy Splash here anymore. But mm, look at the clock on the wall. Was that a little stuffed animal on the top right, shelf right. there? It's I'll, I'll be back in a while. He's had a bad dream and uh, he's had a little accident. Let's say. No worries. <laughs> okay. okay. You got a teeny tiny. Yeah, we'll say. We'll, <laughs> we're we're saying goodbye. Flair, say goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much, Christopher. I'll post that video on Twitter. All right, the yeah, five observables. I'll put it up there. <laughs> yeah, we'll catch you later. All right, brother. Bye. All right, Nathan. Okay. Yes. Yes. Great talk with everybody. Thank you, audience, for being here. And uh, next up with us on Tuesday night yes. is uh, Mr. Yes. Luis Jimenez from the Unidentified Celebrity Review. Looking forward to chatting yes. with him one on one or five on one in this case. So be fantastic. <laughs> Uh, and uh, if you haven't hit that uh, like and subscribe, please do so so that you get uh, to follow our content going forward. As always, a pleasure. DJ, you want to take us out? Thank you. Thank you so much. And I also want to just say thank you to Deb because Deb uh, brought Christopher to us uh, and made us aware of, of him. I don't, some of you may have been aware of his work and, and, and I wasn't. So thank you very much, Debs. And so for uh, Nathan, for Akashi, for Flarius. Wait, Anthony wait, Jeff. pause. Don't forget yes, pause. Don't forget pause. Remind everybody of pause, oh. DJ. Oh, yes. oh okay, so that's tomorrow night. Okay, so uh, tomorrow night at 9 p.m., uh, we will have on uh, the lovely Susan Fenston to uh, reveal actually, the winner of the... Well, Tuesday night. I'm sorry, I host that one. Um, oh, it's Tuesday. So sorry. tomorrow yeah. we're going to be doing the drawing. The drawing. So we the still have an opportunity to enter that raffle for that great Susan Fenston piece. Then okay, so we're going to have the winner on Tuesday. Tuesday. It's okay. invited on the show. We decided to okay, add that as a, like an extra prize. Thank like, you. Let's thank have you. him on and have a meet Susan and hopefully people yes. get excited and give more oh, to and the puppies hopefully. and the kittens. Oh, and surprise hopefully guests. I win. Because, and and I, no, you cannot win. <laughs> and surprise, <laughs> surprise, no cabbie can win. Surprise guest, uh, Tia will come on and also uh, thank thank uh, Susan and everybody else. So she'll jump in at uh, nine o'clock on uh, whichever night that you guys <laughs> prescribe is going to be. Sorry. So, uh, so thank you, thank you very much, uh, Nathan, for doing another amazing job as you always do. Akashi, Chris, Flarius, Kevin, and Deb.
a study of UAPs, the host of Deb's Data Dojo. So I for like the cabbies, <laughs> the cabbies, this DJ saying peace oh. out, one love, and we'll see you down the road. Peace. Bye. Peace. Bye. Bye.